Today, it's all about building the power of a photograph on Behind the Shot. Hi, welcome to Behind the Shot. I'm Steve Brazel, and this is the show where we try and get inside the mind of great photographers by taking a closer look behind one of their shots from conception to completion, all those stories and challenges that happen in between. Uh, as always, the show notes and links for this show, my guest today, everything about this show, you can find it at the website. It's at behindtheshot.tv. As well, as you are uh, watching this, if you are watching on video, you can get this podcast wherever you get your podcasts in an audio-only format or in a video format if your podcast outlet of choice supports video. You can also get the video over on YouTube. If you are watching on YouTube, please head down, hit the thumbs up button, leave any comments that you want down there, and of course, subscribe if you enjoy what you're seeing. And uh, I wanna get right into today's guest. Today's guest is a photographer and an, a teacher and an artist. And when I say artist, I mean artist in every sense of the word. Canon Explorer of Light, Sam Abel. Sam, how are you? Good, Steve. Very nice to be here. Thank you for having me on the podcast. It's it's wonderful to meet you. I have known of your work for a while, mostly because of your Nat Geo experience. But when it was you know arranged to, to have you on the show, I was super excited about it because you're one of those photographers that you you take the decades of knowledge that you have on how to tell stories with photographs, which I would argue today, I don't want to say it's a lost art. There's a lot of people who reiterate all the time, you've got to tell a story with your photograph. But so many people in the digital world, I find, are so focused on the technical aspect and forget the storytelling. Is that just me or do you feel that way too? I, I know that it's uh, becoming a lost art. And people are interested in the, just the quick hit and not the story behind it. Yes. Yeah, which, again, with your Nat Geo experience, let me, let me explain to those that don't know Sam Abel. You were a contract and staff photographer for National Geographic for, was it, it's got to be like 34, 35 years now? 33 years, yes. 33 years. I almost had mm -hmm. it. I went too high. <laughs> uh, when you look at, at National Geographic, which is, for many people, the pinnacle of documentary photography, right? I mean, it's photojournalistic, it's travel photography, it's kind of everything wrapped into one, but I, I, I really look at Nat Geo as documentary photography most of the time. When you look back on your 33 years at Nat Geo, mm -hmm. is, is there any main takeaway that you get from that experience? It was a way of life. Um, so you gave yourself over to it. It was the photographic life. And the title of my mid-career retrospective was that, the photographic life, because it wasn't a career and it wasn't a job. It was a way of life. And uh, I gave myself completely over to it, uh, to still photography, not video and uh, not commercial photography. I never had a studio. I didn't consider that I had a business or even a career. I had a life. Okay, there is a lot to unpack there. <laughs> first of all, I, I want to go into that first line you said. It was a way of life. Mm -hmm. Can you can you quantify that in some way to me? What what? Well, um, so I had a salary, and um, I had assignments, and the assignments could last. Uh, one assignment lasted fourteen months straight. 
And during that time, I was on my own. So I didn't have a shot list or an art director or even an editor looking over my shoulder. It was up to me to conceive of the story and to bring it home. So um, to, do, to do that, it was full, full immersion. And, um, and on that 14-month assignment, I was in the field the whole time. And uh, that's what I mean by life. But a typical assignment would be four, five, six months. One thing I've always wondered, did you pick your assignments or, or propose or suggest your assignments, or did they just merely come down the pipe as, Sam, this is yours? When I was young, they came down the pike. Uh, the older that I got and the more experience and the more credibility I had, the more I could craft the assignment myself. Sometimes that meant working with an author who wanted to work with me. We wanted to work together. We liked each other. We respected each other. And if you're in the field with someone for months, it's important that you get along and that you have mutual respect. And I like the writers. I liked working with writers. Um, not everyone did, uh, but I, I consider that I'm a writer myself. So um, I always was comfortable and collegial uh, with the writers that I worked with. And toward the end, um, stories were customized toward me the last 10 years of my career. Okay, so you now take all of that experience and you educate, which I think is wonderful. Uh, you teach workshops and you've taught workshops or, or are going to be teaching workshops through a number of, of high-end outlets, Santa Fe Workshops, Pacific Northwest Art School, uh, the main media workshops, LA Center of Photography, and one that you're working with now is Nebechi Creative. Is that how you pronounce it? That's right. That's right. Yes. Uh, you want to tell me a little bit about some of the workshops you've got coming up? Well, the, the most interesting one, I think, are the online ones, and I'm teaching an advanced one starting next week for people that have taken the, the what you might call the basic Sam Abel online workshop. This is, this is for photographers that want to know what to do with their photographs. They can, they can make images, they're proven photographers, but what are they gonna do with it? And so the, that workshop is the current workshop, the upcoming workshop. And all of those are through George Nobechi, Nobechi Creative in Japan. He um, is the host of those and the producer of those online workshops. So in researching you, touching on that, in researching you, I saw an interview with you. I think it's on mm -hmm. your website, in fact, where you answered a question of who's your favorite photographer. And you said your dad, which is who mm -hmm. got you into photography. <laughs> yeah. It seems like your dad was such a big influence on your art. And which I understand because I've had a number of guests who I got started in photography because at 14, my dad gave me, you know, camera X, right? Mm -hmm. You take all of that and you now teach a class. I, I, I find conceptually, I have not taken it. I find conceptually fascinating. Mm -hmm. The life of a photograph. That's right. Ex well, explain. <laughs> the, the, the explanation begins with the fact that uh, something like between one and two billion photographs are taken each day, and almost all of them 
have no life uh, beyond the, the flickering existence of it. Um, and yet we know, you know, Steve, and I know uh, that certain photographs have a meaningful life and a durable life. They're iconic. They're um, the bedrock of why we believe in photography is that we've seen other photographers make these pictures. So we know that they that photographs can have a life. And I'm interested in how that happens and why it happens. And, and that's the title of one of my books, The Life of a Photograph. How, how does it happen? And Again, I have a, I have a <laughs> conceptually, that is, I, I love that idea because it's almost a question that can't be answered, right? I mean, why does photograph A versus photograph B, why does one of them end up being iconic or, or have that? that longevity. I mean, in some cases it's easy, right? I mean, Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Liston or right. whatever, but in many cases it's photographs that in any other time, in any other scenario would be benign, mm -hmm. but at that time in society or humanity as a whole, or just what happened on Instagram that day, mm -hmm. That image gets a life to it. You mentioned you're, you, you've got a book, The Life of a Photograph. You've got a lot of right. books. Seeing Gardens. Right. The Photographic Life. Yes. Amazonia. Right. Stay This Moment. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got lots of different books. And you also have something called the Sam Abel Library, which is what exactly? It's a box set of four hardbound volumes, and each one takes up a place. So it's called, the subtitle is The Photography of Places. One of them is Australia, which we're going to be talking which about. Which we're going to talk about, right. Which which brings me to something, because you've said a number of things already, and we're what, you know, 10 minutes in or whatever. You've said a number of things already that make me kind of understand how Sam Abel works and thinks. Mm -hmm. The idea of, the, again, I keep coming back to the photographic life. I, I, I find that really, really fascinating. On your website, you have a video. Uh, I think it was for The Atlantic, called How Genius Works. Mm -hmm. And in it, you mention the phrase, original, compelling photographs. Mm -hmm. What a phrase, original, <laughs> compelling photographs. But that begs the question, what makes a photograph compelling? Well, I can, uh, I can give you an um, introductory answer. And it's in that book, The Life of a Photograph. I can I can tell you what a what a photograph when a photograph doesn't have life. Let's start there. A photograph loses its life when it can be memorized. When you look at it again and it offers you nothing new. If a photograph can be memorized, it's dead. So that's the beginning of of an answer. Okay. I, this is one of those ones where if this was an audio only podcast, somebody would cut out my silence right here, but I don't want to because <laughs> I want people to hear me thinking because that, that answer, you called it introductory, but I would argue if you really sit and think about that for a minute, that's a rather complex statement when, so, okay, so let me, let me dive into that for a second. Let's pick a, a famous photograph. 
All right. And, and it doesn't have to be a specific one. Photograph mm -hmm. X that is famous. Let's just assume mm -hmm. that there is a famous photograph in front of us. Mm -hmm. Can we not memorize famous photographs too? Uh, I, I guess what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, I think what you're saying is if you can come back to it at a future time and get something different out of it or get reinforcement of the original thought, is that, am I on the right track? You're on the right track, yes. Okay. If you come back, if, if you, a photograph that continues to nourish you Ooh, has, okay. a, has a life. Wow. Um, right. you, you mentioned the Ali picture. Um, so we all know that. Um, and you could say that we have memorized it. At least I feel right now that you and I are imagining the very same thing. Yeah, we can Ali, picture it in our head, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and so that's, that's, a, that's a really complex picture to enter into this discussion because it's a uh, significant uh, sports history moment. It's almost like spot nose. And yet there's a transcendent quality to it. Right. It's, and every, every uh, time you see it, there's a different punch in your own gut that you feel. Yes, that's right. So I would say that picture has a dramatic and dynamic life. And it will never fade. It will always be potent and visceral, as you say, a punch in the gut. Um, because every element of it is, uh, resonates uh, with the intensity of the moment. Photographers are always talking about moments. So the moment is uh, richly rendered. Uh, but it's also classical. It's, it's like Greek or something. It's a timeless, eternal uh, posture of the uh, victor and the vanquished. Uh, there's a wonderful little sidebar to that uh, picture, too, that um, I might mention. The greatest prize-fighting boxing photographer of all time is shown with his camera on the ring in the background of that picture. And he was on the wrong side of the moment. Herb Schroffman or something like that is his name. And he has a poignant uh, relationship to that great picture because he's the one who should have made it. And everyone knows it. And, and it's interesting because that's one of the shots. I believe that actually was a medium format shot. So it's not as bad as some others from the time, but that's one of the shots I always use as an example to people to stop thinking about the noise because the most iconic shots of our day, Ali over Sonny Liston, Kent State, right. Napalm Girl, the most iconic shots of our lives, or at least my life, uh, are filled with noise and nobody ever goes, ooh, you know, there's noise in that shot <laughs> because they have, right? I mean, if somebody did that to the Muhammad Ali shot, I'd want to, you know, backhand them. It, The iconic shot rises above all of that other noise, both figuratively and and, and literally. Uh, and it's interesting you say that photographer on the other side of the ring, because as a music photographer, I get that all the time where I know they're going to jump. I am ready for them to jump and they jump and face the other way. And I've got a picture of somebody's butt flying in the air. It, <laughs> you just, you don't always get lucky. So I want to get into 
today's photograph. Before we do, just a quick reminder to everybody, this show is available, as I said up at the, the beginning of the show, wherever you get your podcasts, in video or audio only. All you got to do is search for Behind the Shot in Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or you know whatever. That is if the service supports video. Spotify, for example, I'm only audio on Spotify or Amazon Music or places like that. Uh, if you want video when your podcast outlet does not support video, head on over to the YouTube channel. And again, once you're on the YouTube channel, head down, hit the thumbs up button if you would. I would very much appreciate it. One last thing that I want to just throw a shout out to is DVE Store. Thank you to them for the high def video. DVEstore.com. You can visit them for all of your digital video equipment needs. And one last thing is I do have another workshop coming up. It's coming up for Princeton Photo Workshops. It's going to be actually in April. And uh, you can get all the information at Princeton Photo Workshop, singular, PrincetonPhotoWorkshop.com. Keep in mind, they do have gift certificates, so that's a good way to give those out as well. And I uh, hope to see some of you in the workshops. And let's get into today's shot. For today's image, Sam and I went kind of back and forth choosing an image. But this image is one of those shots, like we kind of just talked about, that tells a story. Right. There is so much about this shot that makes me want to be there, not want to be there because for all I know, the odor coming out of the back of that truck is something unusual. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there are there are all kinds of looking at a photograph. This is exactly what we we're talking about, that 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 visceral feeling. There are all kinds of elements in this photograph that make me feel something. And yet I wasn't there, but I'm aware there's probably a smell. I'm almost aware of the temperature that was there because of the way you framed it and composed this shot. So let's, for those that, that are into technical stuff, let's start with the technical stuff. What camera body did you shoot this with? Do you remember? So it was a Canon uh, SLR at the time. This was in the 1990s. So whatever, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know that model number now, but a Canon and my walk around lens is a 24 to 70. So that would have been the lens at the time. Okay. Uh, let me ask you this. Let me dive into that for a second. Is there a reason that for your, your preferred single on camera lens, you went with that medium zoom, the 24 to 70, as opposed to a prime or a wide or. So I, at the time I was um, using zoom lenses for the first time, I had more faith in them than than I'd used prime lenses all my life and all my career. But uh, I was more interested now in uh, mobility and lightness and dexterity. Um, I wanted to be lighter uh, and more uh, responsive, and so I didn't want to be carrying a bag of lenses around. Uh, right. So this one gave I, you that that. It, that kind of documentary right. range in one lens. That's right. So obviously this was film and you may not know, but on the chance that you do, do you know what the exposure was here or w could you make a guess? I can make a guess. I would say I'd like to be around F8. Uh, and this is uh, strong Australian desert light. So I would probably have been around 125th at F8. Any idea of the film? Fujichrome. Fujichrome. Okay. So mm -hmm. for those of you listening on the audio, I'm going to try and describe this shot. There is no way in hell I'm going to be able to describe this shot. 
And and the reason that I say that, and I say it's difficult every show, but here's the thing with this particular image. There are intricacies in this image. I, I don't think, I think I saw them the first time. I won't remember to say them. There's so many intricacies in this shot, but I'm going to give it a shot and let's see how, how well I do here. First of all, as, as Sam mentioned, this is Australian light. This is a, a portrait in Australia. It's landscape orientation. And I'm going to start by kind of building the pieces up. Picture open Australian land, like Australian ranch land, open dust and brush kind of behind you, right? Beautiful sky. And when I say beautiful sky, I want you to picture clouds. I want you to picture color, not fake color, not oversaturated color, not, you know, overcooked image, but they are saturated. Like there are so many colors in the horizon line and in the skyline. And what I find interesting is the light appears to be, and we'll find out in a minute, but the light appears to be natural sunlight low in the horizon on camera right coming across the frame. And it's hitting the people that are in the frame and the land on the left side warm. But on the right side of the image, it's really cool. I mean, there's two completely random different temperatures happening in this shot. In the middle of the shot and yet not dead center, it's kind of angled. You're standing at the bed end of an old, beat up, weathered truck. I'm just gonna go with the truck first of all. The truck itself goes towards the middle but slightly askew towards the right of the frame, which to me is perfect. It's not dead center, it adds a little bit of tension. And one of the really cool things is the horizon line is dead level, but the truck isn't. So as the truck goes towards the horizon line, it gets more askew, like it's just this old beat up truck or the left front wheel is in a ditch. I mean, it's it's there's a wonderful kind of tension build there. In the back of the old truck, well, let's start here. On the cab of the truck, on the back of the back window of the cab of the truck is almost like a roll bar cage type thing to prevent anything from the back going through the window. Left-hand side, there's a shovel that's mounted to the cab. And in the bed are bones. We're talking like cattle carcasses that are, that are in there. There's even two old tires in there. <laughs> and there is a young lady standing in there. She's all the way at the back. The bed is so full, it's not like her feet are at the bottom of the bed. She's standing on all of this stuff. She's way up high. The top of that cage behind the, the cab is about her waist. I mean, she goes way up into the sky, which is awesome because she's free of any intersections of anything. I, I, I love that. She is centered on the cab, kind of almost centered on the picture. One of the tires laying down with the bones, one of them standing up. And then outside the truck, on the left-hand side, and this is where the composition strength comes into me. The fact that I said that the truck starts centered at the bottom, but skews right as it goes back to the horizon, left room on the left-hand side. And it wouldn't have if it was centered. It left room on the left-hand side to balance that skew with a man, a rancher standing outside the bed, clearly rancher style with a straw type cowboy hat, a shirt with sleeves cut off. I mean, it's right out of a Crocodile Dundee movie. Um, both the ranchers look serious. I keep looking at the bones because again, there's got to be a smell here that I'm not getting, but I know there's something there. 
And all of this is done with leading lines leading to the vastness, that open horizon line with trees in the distance, that the, the leading lines take you down the railing of the two people. There, there is so much here. Trust me, go to BehindTheShot.tv and check out the image. So did I miss anything? <laughs> Not to me. You, that was a wonderful description of this photograph. I learned something by what you were saying. Uh, the fact that it's slightly off center, the fact that the cab itself is tilted, uh, which goes to the age of the truck and, uh, right. and the irregularity of the desert. Those are things I had not noticed. And, and yet they add, they add that tension of reality, not, you know, not, okay, let's pull onto this flat ground. Oh my gosh, I don't want to pull on uneven ground. There's the, there's an imperfection in the truck. Right. Right. That I just yes. think is just amazing. So I, I have to know. And we have, by the way, as we go through this, uh, we have some slides that I can pull up to to show different stages of of what Sam did with the image. But let's start here. Tell me the story about making this image. The story begins in the morning. This is in the afternoon. You were right about the late. Okay, good. Late light. This is very late in, in the day light, last light of the day, which gives the dramatic, uh, warm, cool, quality to the light on the faces that you spoke about, Steve. So the, the, the story begins in the morning, about 50 miles away from here. I'm at the headquarters of this vast cattle station in the desert, the great sandy desert of Australia. So this is Western Australia, far Western. And I needed permission to go and photograph the Roundup and the barbecue that was going to take place far out on the backside of the ranch, so 50 miles away. I met the, the owner of the ranch, the manager, and I introduced myself, told him I was from National Geographic, and we were looking for authentic pictures of the cattle culture. Can I interrupt you for a second? Because I have to ask a question I've always wondered. Mm -hmm. When you walk up to somebody in Australia and you drop the name, I'm with National Geographic, did that open just just that sentence? Did that open doors for you? Yes. I I, I figured that had to be a powerful statement. Yeah. It. Uh, I was only on one two assignments. I was on two assignments in my life where it didn't open doors, and that's out of uh, thirty three years of doing assignments. Okay. Sorry. Didn't it mean to interrupt. It, go go ahead with no, your story it's again. A good, it's a good question. Um, I didn't know. Uh, what those words meant until they didn't work. And then I, then I knew, I was reminded of how powerful those two words are to gain entree and access and cooperation, everything, anything, actually. People respected National Geographic and they were honored to be um, photographed or involved. So it's a good question. Very good question. So anyway, I, I spoke to the ranch manager, introduced myself, told him what our needs were. And he said, son, you can photograph anything on this station except the girl. Well, I didn't, I didn't know who he meant by the girl, but I agreed to that because I, I, <laughs> I needed to cover this. And so, uh, my wife was with me and 
we had a guide. And the three of us headed out. We got to the cattle station late in the day. I mean, the site of the Roundup and the barbecue. And um, one of the first things I was told is that um, these two hands, a man and a woman, were butchering a, a cow, a dry cow, for the barbecue. And I thought, I've missed it. I missed the action. And just then, they pulled up in this um, old, I think it's a Toyota um, pickup truck, battered and beat up, as you said. And the back was full of beef. And yes, I had missed the action. But now, I still had to make a photograph. I had to make a photograph that told a story, as you said earlier. And so I set up on this composition, and there was no light. It was dead in terms of light. The sun was behind a cloud. And I shot a glance off to the west, and I thought, that sun is not going to come through. So I'm just going to photograph it in the bad light and hope for the best. And then I got about a 20-second shot of strong Australian desert late light. And because I was set up, because I hadn't given up on the situation, because I was still focused and composed, I was able to just nail the picture. Um, right then, the owner of the ranch showed up, got out of his car, and said to me, son, I told you not to photograph the girl. Oh. Now we both got a big problem. Do you want me to go on? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I had the shot in the camera, and I knew that it was iconic. I This is pre-digital, so I, I didn't have a printout of it on the back of the camera. But I knew it. You, you knew. I knew in my career when things had gone right. I knew when I had it. I knew when I didn't have it. And I had it. And so I took a deep breath and I said, what's the problem? He said, she's not Australian. I said, what is she? He said, she's Canadian. And she doesn't have a work permit. So I can't let you publish that photograph. Because she'll get in trouble. So will I. So will the ranch. And I said, I'll tell you what. I'll make you a deal. I can't say that the picture will be published. That's not my decision. But it's a strong picture. And I'm going to push for it. But if it's published, we won't name her or the ranch. And we'll send it to you for permission before it's published. And that's exactly what happened. It ran double page in the geographic. It became an iconic picture of the Australian frontier, life in the desert, and young Australia. These are two young people. And so the, the vitality of Western Australia and the rugged lifestyle uh, are so well represented here that the picture has become famous in Australia and elsewhere. So I, I have to ask two questions, really. One, how old were you as you were talking to this guy? <laughs> Let's see, I was uh, in my 50s. Okay. Yeah. And they put this 
on a, on a double spread, which means there was a fold down the middle. Yeah, they shifted it. As you pointed out, she's not dead center in the, in the frame. And the spread comes just off her elbow. They, they enlarged it a little bit, shifted it around so that she just misses the fold, the gutter. Okay. Wow. Mm-hmm. Such, I love that story. I love the, should I go on? So <laughs> let's, uh, you sent me these kind of assembly pieces, which is, is when you sent this, and a lot of times, you know, the, the, some of the audience knows with, with about 50% of the audience being audio only, I try not to do a whole bunch of images because it's hard for the audio audience to follow, but you can always go to behindtheshot.tv to see any images and the images we're going to go through now those are up there as well. So you can see those because when you sent these to me, Sam, and said, can we include these? You know, in my head was my standard kind of, oh, I don't really add, you know, too many photos. It gets confusing. And then I looked at them and went, this is building the photograph. Right. This is, That's this right. is literally the art of building a photograph. So let's, let's run through these really quick. First of all, this I'm guessing is this is before. This is really what it was like, uh, except for twenty seconds. It was dead dull, and they're staring at me, this couple, uncomprehendingly, kind of, because uh, I'm I'm photographing, and I'm photographing what I call phrase I use is photographing through the situation. So this is approximately the setup, but you notice they're a little awkward. His elbow is not on the tire, and and she looks a little forced and uh, strained. Her knee isn't quite right, and her expression isn't timeless. But the main thing is there's no light, and so this is unpublishable. Nevertheless, I made the photograph. <laughs> Somebody asked me why once, and I said, you know, I thought the very act of me photographing would make the sun shine. I just thought if I photograph this hard enough, the sun will come out. Okay. And it did. <laughs> so that would be so this, this next it, shot. Yes. And so this is, there it is. When, if you want to teach someone that light matters, just show them these two pictures. But look how much better he is. His elbow on the tire, the, the stalwart expression on his face. And she's immensely better. She just is, she's gone from artificial to natural. So everything. Okay, so let me ask you this then, because I need to know then. He, Mm -hmm. let me, let me go back actually. So this is the before his elbow is tucked under his left elbow. A camera right right, is tucked under him. The right hand is almost pushing against the bed of the truck. She, you're right. Right. She looks almost awkwardly uncomfortable. And then you go to this one and there, his shoulders even dropped. Yes. Did you did you co did you coach this posing? What happened? You know, I I have no I I have no memory of that. I would tell you if I did, um, but I do not. I they were generally in this position, and I told them to hold it. I think just hold it, and and they got more relaxed. And I I may have said something small, but I certainly didn't uh, art direct it or style it. Um, they were themselves. And wow. they were they were stiff in the first picture, and I probably took half a dozen or more pictures, uh, and and maybe just the act of me photographing um, loosened them up and allowed them to relax. 
And, um, and they did. And that's everything. Their naturalness, Steve, is, is, the, is the heart and soul of this picture. They kind of look like models. Yeah, they do. I know. But, but they are so authentically. Uh, I love it. Love it. So then chance. Yeah. what's the point yes. of, of this part? The point is the one that you've made. The photographs, at least my photographs, are built. Um, and it begins with the sky. So you mentioned that right at the beginning. And I was so happy that you did because my pictures begin on the back layer. So my that's where my photographs begin. And I build them forward. So the sky was very important to this picture of the clouds. And um, the other thing that's very important to me that I would have been conscious of is to get their head and shoulders above the horizon line. So his head is above the horizon line. But the unique building in this picture takes place beginning on the left with the fellow's hat. And, the shape and for those it. on audio right now, what I have up is is I've removed the picture except for the square where the gentleman's shoulders and head are. That's right. And his hat is prominent and it's got a distinctive shape. If you go to the next one, that same shape repeats itself in oh. the in the shape of the shovel. It's it's exactly the same shape as his hat and head. And then you go to the third one at the top of the picture, and it's a little it's a little less specific, but generally the shape of her head, even her shoulders, repeats that. And so there is a repetition of forms that that rise up the picture to the apex. Coming back down the other side is the tire and the roll bar, as you said. And they continue the repetition of that rounded shape. So this picture has a very subtle, but to me distinctive repetition of forms that drive the power of the photograph. Suddenly, I mean, almost subconsciously. I, I would say to you that no one sees this and everyone feels it. I'm at, And then when you drop those four squares, back in. Yes. Now I can't unsee it. <laughs> right. Good. So, and I'm kind of, again, I describe pictures all the time. I'm a little frustrated that I didn't catch that because now I cannot unsee the stair steps of the That's man's hat is. to the shovel to her and back down the other side. Oh my God, man. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. So natural light this is all natural light that's right you it's almost like you could not have set this up any you could not have said to them over here no pull a little left pull it's almost like they just pulled up and parked at the yes. perfect angle for light I, yes I, that doesn't happen to me i'm just going to say it right up front <laughs> that never happens to me the truck bed angles are spot on here Heavy on the right side, again, as I mentioned, leaves room on the left side. As you're looking through the SLR, mm -hmm. you're aware of those stair steps. Are you aware of, in that short amount of time, are you aware of all of that? The leading lines, no. the, the weight, 
Because the weight left to right is yes. balanced. I'm aware of the leading lines, for sure. The most uh, habitual characteristic trademark composition of mine is in this photograph, which is, if for simplicity's sake, it's a, a very centrally shown distant horizon line with a road going to it. And that's essentially what's it, what this is. This is a distant horizon line with a canoe or a distant horizon line with a road. Uh, but it happens to be a distant horizon line with the bed of a truck going to it. But the movement, the structural movement in this picture, and the fact that they are head and shoulders above the horizon line and that the, and that the sky is powerful, those things are known to me. The stair step was not. So I only when, saw that. I only saw that afterwards. Okay, interesting. So, this being film, would you have developed it and done stuff in the darkroom, or you would have just turned it in and Nat Geo would have done it? This is a, this is straight out of the camera. I don't think this has been touched at all ever in its history. This is an an original Chrome that you're looking at. I mean, wow. as close to that as you can get. So that brings in the question then. Today, now that we are in digital, Sam goes and shoots a shot. What, what software are you using nowadays? When Sam goes and takes a shot, it looks exactly like this on the back of the camera. In other words, I dial in what looks to me to be a Kodachrome or Fujichrome slide on the back of the camera. I, that's photography to me. So when I, when I look at the back of my Canon camera, I this is what I want to see, and I will I, I dial in the exposure and the composition, everything. I take finished photographs still, and, and of course in 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 the analog film world, every picture that I submitted to the GIA, every picture that I made for thirty three years, had this um, had this finished quality. They, they didn't look like this. Of course, uh, every situation was unique. But the point is, when you showed the editor uh, your work, you showed slides, and you couldn't say, this will be better after post-production. Right. There was no post. So you showed the, uh, you work on an assignment for a year at the Geographic, and you show maybe 60 slides, and each one of them had to be fully finished, fully realized. Okay, and so and that's what I want uh, for the last twenty years out of my digital work. So anybody that's in a workshop of mine, I put my pictures straight from the camera onto the screen. I I don't I don't touch them. They are like doctored or. I like that, and I and I <laughs> I wish I did that more, and I wish more people did that more because I think it adds. I'm look thinking of a word here. It's not credibility. It's not authenticity, but it's kind of a mixture of the two. So I want to do a speed round with you. For these next questions, just answer them as fast as you wish to, or mm -hmm. linger if you want to, okay? Mm -hmm. But we'll call it the speed round. In all of your years of documentary photography, mm -hmm. what is your top documentary photography tip? You know, Robert Kappa said, if your photographs aren't good enough, you're not close enough. 
And my work and my spirit contradicts that. I've learned that if I'm drawn to a subject, I step back and frame it. I, I contextualize it. So I would say to photographers, if your photographs aren't good enough, step back. You're too close. Okay. Give it context and complexity. I like that, I like that because it also has a, a very poignant description with it of, of why. I, uh, it makes sense. <laughs> what is the biggest mistake you almost made or I guess for that matter did make? Well, I went on assignment once with uh, only film and the camera, but I don't think you're asking about that. In other words, I had n no film other than the film that was in the camera. I I thought there was film in my donkey bag and there wasn't. Um, and I, I had one, 36 pictures in the camera and I had to make them last all day. But I don't think... That's not what you're asking, is it? That works. Uh, <laughs> that's That would be like going with no, not enough batteries today. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I... I um, Which I'm not going to say that I've done that, but I'm not going to say that I haven't either. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, what is your favorite compositional technique or rule, if you have one? Head and shoulders above the horizon line. The horizon line has great power to make or break a photograph. And photographers don't begin on the back layer. They are they concentrate too much on the subject and not enough on the setting. So when I teach photography, I teach setting first, subject second. Begin at the back, build the photograph forward. And and let me add to that, although trust me what I'm going to say has not nearly as much weight as when Sam says it. <laughs> but that fits every type of, I don't care what your genre is. I don't care if you're in a studio shooting on a backdrop or like me shooting a concert. The first thing I generally try and do is worry about where the lights are behind the singer, where the microphone stands are behind the singer. Put put the subject on the background, in other words. So yeah, I love that. Yes, that's it. That's a good way of putting it. What's your favorite drink? <laughs> If I want to be happy with my friends, the drink is sake. Oh, I just had if some last night. If you're interested in a happy, if you're interested in being happy, sake is the drink. Okay. And this one, you may or may not have one. What is your biggest photography pet peeve? <laughs> I just... I just think we're drowning in images. Um, there's, there's such a thing as too many photographs and we're living in that world now. And so people say, why aren't, why they say to me, why aren't you more active on the internet? And I said, I said to them, it's demoralizing. It's uh, oceanic and, a, and a, a photograph that I've spent time on that I'm proud of, I think will be uh, lost in that ocean. Okay. And the final question, is there a photographer out there working today or long gone that you think more people need to know about? You know, the photographer whose work uh, interests me, and I, I think he had the biggest uh, effect on photography at National Geographic, was the Magnum photographer, Alex Webb, who's still active. And um, I, so here's what I think about a, photography. I think photography is thought. 
I think it's your thought or my thought or Tom Daly's thought who's sitting here beside me. So when I, when I look at uh, a photograph, I, I think I'm looking at the thought of the photographer. And I think Alex Webb's the most, thought, most interesting, thoughtful photographer working today. Okay. And you mentioned Tom, who was instrumental in, in helping get all this set up. Uh, yes. Without him knowing, because he can't hear us. That's right. He can't hear. Yeah. So let's mess with Tom for a second. Wave right. at Tom and have him just come behind you really quick so that we can get him on camera to say hi. He's a Here great American. Tom, where are you at? He thinks there's something wrong probably. Yeah, there he is. Hey, Tom. I got to compose myself properly. <laughs> yeah, clean background. Wait, Tom, you had the wrong horizon line. Uh, Tom, thank you very much for what you did earlier today. And uh, Sam, if people want to connect with you, and we've been putting these up as we've been talking, but let's mm -hmm. just for the audio audience, say your website and your your Instagram really quick. Uh, what is your sure. main website that people can go to to find out more of your work? It's my name, samable.com. Okay. And um, Instagram, it's, I think it's samableteacher.com. And just to be clear, Abel is A, B, E, and two L's. That's right. Two L's on that. So for everybody else, links to this show, everything about Sam. I wrote a little bit about Sam as well. Uh, links to anything that we talk about. Those are all in the show notes. Those are over at BehindTheShot.tv. Sam, thank you so much for doing this, man. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. I learned a lot. I'm, I, I thought that I knew everything about that photograph and its history and the story behind it. But you very skillfully uh, brought out uh, new things to me and your analysis of the picture was spot on. Thank you very much. Well, that means a ton to me. You have absolutely no idea what that means to me. Everybody go check out the blog post. It's at behindtheshot.tv. You can, again, find all the links there. Also, while you're on the website, you can find all the different ways that you can subscribe to the podcast. There are links there for pretty much every subscription method that you're going to be able to find. As well, if you want to follow me or the podcast on social media, my social media, Twitter and Instagram is at Steve Brazel, like the country Brazil, but two L's. The podcast is at Behind the Shot TV. So you can find that there as well. Keep in mind, if you're watching on YouTube, head down, hit subscribe, hit all the buttons down there. You're not going to break anything. Nothing's going to get hurt. And that does it for this time around on this show. Join us next time as we take a look inside the mind of a great photographer by taking a closer look behind one of their shots. Thank you.